Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Now today, a very interesting subject we're covering, and we're going to be talking about the fraternities. And um, I've seen so many things on TV about it, and so many different... Um, issues with it and it's a very uh, unique thing to the United States and a book that I came across was uh, True Gentleman and it's uh, The Broken Pledge of American Fraternities and uh, John Heckinger is the author and he's joined us here so welcome John well thank you thank you so much for having me Alan Kevin really appreciate it yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. Now, first, before you got into, um, uh, how did you get involved in writing about the fraternities and, and get involved in the whole um, industry, we'll call it? I wrote a series of articles at Bloomberg News, where I work as a reporter and editor uh, with a colleague. We looked at deaths of fraternities over almost a decade, also started trying to figure out which fraternity had the biggest problem. And in the end, we focused on one very large organization, Sigma Alpha Epsilon, which became the focus of my book. What is a fraternity supposed to be about? What is it supposed to do for, for students? Well, fraternities are about brotherhood, and many young men turn to fraternities when they arrive on campuses. And fraternities are more popular than they've ever been. There are something like 400,000 members. It's a 50% increase over the last decade. And many students find that, particularly at a big and personal public university, they are kind of thirsting for real human contact and for kind of a ready-made group 
that will see them through their four years. And many find the organizations to be helpful in that way. They're also a, an incredible career network that help them get involved in student government and internships and can also catapult them into Congress and uh, even the presidency and the Supreme Court. So there's many reasons why people are attracted to them. But as I found in researching the book, from the beginning, they've also had this dark side. Um, I call it the sort of holy trinity of, of, um, of deadly drinking and racism and sexual assault. And these are issues that have, you know, from the beginning of the movement, which began in the 19th century, um, this has been something that they've had real trouble with and have been struggling with, um, probably never more than today. So is this something that just sort of has turned in the last 20 years, or has this been going on all along? Because I, I ask that because there seems to be a lot of um, tradition with fraternity, and a lot of these drinking contests and d different things that they they have and hazing and initiations have been going on for, for, for years now. Right. You know, how did this That's begin? Well, that's certainly true. If you think about hazing, I mean, hazing goes back to the Greeks, and in the United States, uh, we imported hazing from, from British boarding schools where older students preyed upon younger students. And what fraternities added was sort of an institutionalized period of hazing called pledging, where new members would be kind of second-class citizens and have to sort of go through a gauntlet of challenges to prove their worthiness and their manhood. And this is something that really intensified after the Civil War and has been a problem really forever. Um, Hank Noor, who is a hazing expert uh, and uh, professor, has chronicled that these deaths going back really to the 60s and before, and there have been at least one hazing death every year. Um, last year there were four and you know, in recent over the last decade, there have been as uh, many as seven in a year. So, this is something that has been going on for a long time. Um, in terms of sort of the modern era, uh, fraternities kind of almost died out in the 60s and 70s in the counterculture. Um, but there was kind of a boom back in the 80s, and people trace it to a number of phenomena. One, Strangely enough, is the movie Animal House, which was supposed to be a satire <laughs> and a parody. Exactly. But many exactly. view it as kind of a, an inspiration. Uh, so that helped sort of rejuvenate the uh, fraternity movement. Another another reason that fraternities became more popular was that the drinking age went from 18 to 21 in the 80s, sort of state by state. And that um, made it more difficult for students to get alcohol and fraternities bravely went into the breach and became kind of the bartenders on, on campus. That also made them quite popular and kind of cemented their, their power at the center of uh, college campuses. But it also intensified all these problems. And I talk a lot in the book about how, again, the, the national organization started worrying um, that fraternities were so dangerous. Uh, insurance companies had raided them um, about the same as toxic waste dumps in terms of risk, that fraternities couldn't get insurance and might have actually um, might have actually uh, went out of business again. Um, and as I discuss in the book, that's been kind of a that's been a struggle. Now I have a, a statement, and I want you to tell me what you think about it. 
um, and I've heard this a lot in general, um, fraternities are just for rich kids that do nothing but help them get through a high-end, high-popular, trendy university with a good name so they can get into high-paying and, you know, jobs and powerful, like, government jobs. And um, you get examples of stuff like George Bush or something that's had a C average and, and um, becomes president. And it's all because of fraternities who give them, um, you know, answers to tests and help them get through without really learning the classes or really getting the marks. Well, there's no question that fraternities are among the most privileged spaces on, on college campuses. And in the book, I look um, particularly at the University of Alabama, which kind of uh, typifies the big public uh, flagship public university, where fraternities have a real lock on social life. And where the fraternities, particularly the sort of what they call the old row fraternities, will recruit young men from in high school um, and will look at the same families at the same schools and pick them even before they get to campus, which means that if you're an outsider and you're, you know, you, you don't, you're not someone of means, um, so if you're African-American, for instance, because these were historically white fraternities, you have very little chance. And in fact, in many of the, of the uh, fraternity chapters that I looked at the University of Alabama, um, they had no black members and, and some had never had any black members. And going back again to the University of Alabama, which I, I, I think has maybe an extreme example, but it sort of offers a um, kind of a roadmap to what you describe. Um, the fraternities have such a lock on student government, they have actually another even more secret organization called the machine, which picks candidates for the presidency of the school um, and for other, other offices. And once again, those positions will help people in Alabama rise to higher office in, in Congress. So it is definitely a very powerful network. And, you know, I, I think that what fraternities will say is that they have opened up um, somewhat over the years and that you will find that there are chapters at some schools that are more diverse. Um, but, you know, it costs money to pay dues, and you need to have time to do um, to go to the parties. And if you're a first generation and uh, or you're African-American, you're very likely to uh, you're very unlikely to find your way into these historically white fraternities that are so powerful. So I think there's certainly some truth to that statement. I have, you know, I spent a lot of almost you know, more than two years um, talking to men all over the country. And I did find some that were not from wealthy families who felt that this was valuable and did help them. So, you know, I don't think this is, it's not every fraternity and every chapter, um, and it might depend a bit on the part of the country, but on the whole, every survey that I've seen has found that people who belong to fraternities tend to be from higher income um, brackets and tend to be, you know, more, more white than the rest of the college. At this point, you know, if you're a poor child coming into a fraternity, what is the benefit of actually joining? If you think that you're going to be an outcast or an outsider, well, I mean, there was there was a study that uh, that uh, came out a couple of years ago um, that looked at at earnings at fraternities and found that people who join fraternities tended to get 
lower grades but had something like one-third higher incomes. So if you can mm. afford it or if the fraternity gives you a break and it helps you get your first internship and your first job, it can be very, very powerful. And there are a lot of examples of people whose fraternity brothers help them help them with their careers and, you know, help them with the transition into life. So, I mean, it, it's these are, in many cases, kind of exclusive clubs, and they're exclusive for a reason. They benefit the people who belong. And the bigger question, really, is whether they benefit the colleges and whether the culture, uh, particularly the, the heavy drinking, is something that is, is worth the benefit that they, they clearly have for some members. So why do they have such stringent majors, you know, to join? I mean, I, I'm looking back at my college days, you know, and, and of course I was always military. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking back, you know, and I'm almost ashamed, you know, at, at some of the parties that, you know, we had. But I don't remember it being this stringent, almost to the point of being lethal. Are you talking about the, the, the really, really ab aggressive hazing? Yes. I mean, that's something that, um, again, goes back to the, to the 19th century. You can find deaths from people being blindfolded at, uh, and falling off of cliffs. Um, and one of the, I think, the, the major differences now is that there's been this combination of, of, of initiation and drinking, particularly hard alcohol. So mm -hmm. a very common a, a, a common hazing technique is to give a recruit, you know, a, a, a bottle of liquor and say, you know, you can't come out till you drink it. And that's enough, you know, to kill people who don't have uh, high tolerance to alcohol. And we've seen that again and again. And there's some misguided sense that this is the way to create some kind of cohesion or brotherhood that, you know, I went through this, you go through this, and so we'll, you know, oh. we'll, we'll, we'll have run the gauntlet. And, you know, I think the military analogy is apt. You know, the, the, the military mm -hmm. had, a, had a tradition of, of having drill sergeants really abuse young recruits. Yes. And although that still happens, and there have been some pretty horrendous cases, the military's tried to get away from it. Because what it really does is, is, is you know, give, give a home to sadists and, at, and discourages people from speaking up when there's something, something terrible is happening. I mean, one of the most disturbing parts in, that I found in my book is are cases where you have a, a, a young man who is clearly um, dying or in danger and, and where the right thing to do is to call 911. And because of this culture of doing what you're told by the by the older men, no one does. And that's what's sort of figured in in some of the most horrific cases in my book. But also more recently at uh, at Penn State, where a young man named Timothy Piazza was asked to drink something like 18 drinks, and I think it was an hour and a half, and oh, wow. stumbled down <laughs> a flight of stairs and hit his head and was horribly injured and kept falling. And his brothers, so-called brothers, were seeing this. And some even said, look, we really need to call for an ambulance. And others said, no, you know, he'll be okay. He'll sleep it off. And this was all captured on, 
on surveillance tapes that happened to be in the in the uh, basement where this happened, there were there was opportunity after opportunity, but because of this culture of not challenging the higher authorities and because of the secrecy and because the fraternity in that case uh, um, had lied about about its pledge program, they didn't do it, and he died. And mm-hmm. now um, dozens of men are still facing criminal charges, and you know this is a real. You know, the, the family has made this a crusade and is pushing for um, type better laws and, and, you know, better behavior of fraternities. Yeah. Correct. Now, I, I'm not going to speak for Al. I, I will speak for myself. You know, I, I have graduated college. You know, I've got two degrees from two different universities. And I have never seen the need to join a fraternity. However, I have been in the military. And I'm getting ready to retire from the military, which are, you know, similar organizations. And I understand hazing. But, you know, I think, you know, kind of the belief here is that nothing brings a group together like a mutual suffering. You know, why alcohol? Why do they choose alcohol or drugs? Well... I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think part of it is that there's a, a culture already of, of binge drinking at fraternities. And I found that studies showed that something like 90% of fraternity men uh, binge drink. Um, and that's twice the level of the rest of the population. And so this is, this is already part of their behavior in general. And that kind of binge drinking that they do is dangerous in and of itself. It's dangerous. You know, it's obviously bad for your health. It risks uh, it risks hospitalization and alcohol problems later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that culture then goes in. You know, comes into the kind of sort of toxic manliness that they're promoting. That you need to hold your liquor. That you need to be tough. And yeah, but you need to be able why to handle not? yourself. Why not? Why not the silly games? You know, let's do this. Let's do that. You know, what is it about alcohol? You know, it, you know, following the pattern, years down the road, it's going to be crack. You know, let's see how much crack you can do before you pass out. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, drugs are an issue too, but alcohol is definitely, uh, particularly hard liquor, is the, is the is perhaps the central hard problem that uh, fraternities have faced. And in fact, the the North American Interfraternity Conference, which oversees the sort of oldest fraternities, has recently initiated a, a ban on hard liquor in at, at fraternity gatherings, which um, the question is whether they can enforce it. But, I mean, they see that this is a problem. Um, but this is, yeah, again, there is something, there is something cultural um, going back to the 19th century. And I found cases where, you know, fraternities were, organizations that on the one hand were rebelling in a good way they were um, early 19th century colleges were places um, that encouraged the study of theology and Latin and Greek which was all fine and good but you had a generation of young men who wanted to be movers and shakers and they wanted to study modern subjects like American uh, literature and poetry and so they were, in part, reading clubs. They were sort of breathing new life into uh, into colleges. 
but they were also rebels. You know, they gambled and they they drank heavily and they even rioted. You know, there are cases in the book where I talk about you know, <laughs> these band where they take over and they you know they take over buildings and they're drinking and they're harassing women. So there's just some kind of sort of rebellious, riotous streak that goes through these organizations that they they kind of have to reckon with. I I, I noticed. Um on the article that you had sent me from before, just in Bloomberg, um, about the death at Delta Sig and uh, Deborah Tim- Tipton. Um, so in, in, in that case, just as many others, it seems like um, what happens is someone ends up dying from uh, over-drinking, usually, and being left for a long period of time. Or long enough where they um, succumb to being, you know, um, overdosed, and uh, quite often the people, if you know, the people that were around them at the time, even if they go to court or get charged, quite often they get off. They don't really serve time. Um, is that going to change, or is this something we can expect to can keep on happening? Well, I think there's there's been something of a change in that. Because of social media and these other technologies like surveillance cameras, there's a lot more evidence than, than there used to be. It's very hard for any kind of behavior from, you know, a, a drinking death to a an offensive party to go un, unrecognized. And so the evidence is there. It's amplified. And you have families like the Tipton family who are determined to change laws and to make sure that these cases get prosecuted. And there are a number of reasons they don't. One is that um, in most states, uh, hazing is, is a misdemeanor that can be punished, mm-hmm. punishable by as little as $500. So you're not going to see police invest a huge amount of energy into hazing cases. They'll pay attention if something terrible happens. And then after a case is brought, it's very difficult. There's kind of a, a, a code of silence among the brothers not to come forward, which in many ways is misguided because they should care about their brother who lost his life. Um, in the case in the in the, the Tipton's family, Tipton family's case, the police didn't did not investigate um, that thoroughly, at least according to the the documents that I reviewed and the sort of interviews that uh, the family uh, did with the. Um, with the police detective, and there were a bunch of leads where it looks like, um, you know, one of one of his fraternity brothers, after he died, um, got a hold of, of Robert Tipton's phone and deleted a bunch of messages on his cell phone, and then later, um, the same brother went with a bunch of other members of the fraternity to Memphis, where the Tipton family lived for the uh, funeral, and during the funeral went so far as to sneak into his room and find his laptop and find documents about the fraternity, um, presumably about uh, hazing perhaps or drug use at the fraternity, and delete them as well. And he acknowledged this in in depositions related to the lawsuit that the uh, family brought. So this is this is the kind of behavior that families 
who are are revealing by insisting on more investigations. And so I have some hope that a lot more, more of the behavior that was sort of swept under the carpet will, will come to light and that families will have a much better understanding of the culture and perhaps push for some kind of change. Now, would it be a fair statement to say that maybe some of these families are being sandbagged by previous members of said fraternities? Well, I think what's what I have noticed is that if you go to a university website, you'll you'll see you know Office of Greek Life, and you'll look, and it'll sound very innocent, and it'll sound wonderful leadership, scholarship, philanthropy. They'll talk about the grade point averages of the of the chapters, and maybe if in some schools there'll be a link to some kind of discipline, but it's usually very vague. And so they offer a lot of reassurance. It's almost an endorsement of Greek life. And that's something I think that will have to change. The uh, president of, of Penn State is pushing for some kind of scorecard and better disclosure of, of discipline that would be sort of uniform across colleges. I, I mean, it, it would help the better chapters if, if this kind of information were available to families so that you could look and see that this 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 chapter is responsible and this one isn't. But sort of a blanket endorsement of fraternities, which is kind of what most schools do, does lead to kind of a sandbagging of, of families. Um, I know Deborah Tipton um, didn't, didn't realize what her son was getting into. Uh, she was actually, and she, she wasn't, wasn't particularly um, suspicious of, of fraternity life. She was a member of a sorority at the University of, uh, sorry, Vanderbilt University. And um, her father had been a member of, of SAE at the University of Virginia. So she wasn't predisposed to, to think one thing or another. Right. I think or, having some or, information about, about it would have been helpful. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Or, you know, or here's our criteria. You've got to do A, B, C, D in order to be a full-fledged member. You know, this is the uh, this is the pledge. This is this, this is this step, this is this step, you know, maybe outline something so maybe somebody could choose something that is not so stringent. Well, the, I mean, the other thing is just to be, you know, the, the research, in terms of, of hazing, the research that, uh, the best research I found, which was actually funded by the, by, by Greek organizations, found that 75% of fraternity members are hazed, and the most common form of hazing involves alcohol. So this is the this is the rule, not the exception, and that's yet. If you go to any fraternity website, the national organization or the university, it will say we have a zero policy, tolerance policy about hazing. It is completely not allowed. And so what's happened is that the the fraternities are making a distinction between hazing, which I guess people consider as sort of the most horrible abuse, the physical beatings or the you know, waterboarding and the force <laughs> drinking until you pass out. Um, and they're not talking about the pledge program. So the pledge program sounds fairly innocent. It sounds like something that's educational. But in most cases, it's kind of a cover for this kind of hazing. So you'll see them maybe have to dress all the same or wear a funny hat or wear a T-shirt, maybe do some cleaning up after the chapter. But Yeah, sure. You know, when the when the when the lights go out, things get really bad. That was one of the one of the cases in the book. I, I wrote about a young man who, you know, wanted to join a fraternity at, in, um, at Salisbury University in Maryland, and he he wanted to work on Wall Street. He wanted the connections. He wanted the social life, and so he he got interviewed, and it was like there was like a boardroom. Everything seemed really on the up and up, and the university made him go in and, and look at the rules and it said, you know, hazing will not be tolerated. We have a zero po tolerance policy. He signs it. So he's really reassured that this is going to be a good experience. But almost immediately he is taken it through a sort of a horrific gauntlet. Um, in, in one case, he's taken to a basement. The windows are darkened and, and there's this there's a stereo down there, and they pound. It's an ear-splitting volume. The same 
um, German heavy metal song over and over again. I mean, it was like something out of Clockwork Orange or something <laughs> Guantanamo Bay is what he described it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they would come in and they would yell at him and throw bottles. And, you know, this is just the beginning. One, another, another night, this is like during, in March, it was cold. They, they would ask the, the young men to be stripped down to their underwear and to go outside and step into a garbage can filled with ice while they were sprayed with water. And then the, the part that I found most ironic is that they would be asked to recite the creed of the universe, of, of, of Sigma Alpha Epsilon, which is called the, the True Gentleman, which is the title of the book, comes from that creed, which is supposed to be about honor and friendship and integrity. And here you are having to say it while you're being essentially tortured. This is the kind of thing that happens. And um, and then it's denied. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, this 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 incident never had never come out before we we uncovered it at uh, at Bloomberg by getting some of these internal documents from the university, which showed that um, you know they had documented this, and we tracked down people who were in the basement and found a, a pledge who dropped out, who corroborated a lot of what he said. So I had no doubt that this had happened. Um, but to this day, and on the local level, the national fraternity believed that this had happened. But the the local alumni, who often fight the the, the shutting down of the chapter, still sort of mm. say this was blown out of proportion. That's the challenge. Wow. Now, John, you know, and I'm speaking as a member of a fraternal organization. What is the purpose of such a a violent initiation? Well, why? I mean, you know, there are so many things that you could do, you know, so, so much you can re require of a member. Why such violent and meaningless, you know, meaningless violence? Well, I mean, that's really an excellent question. And one of the things that really um, I found inspiring in the course of researching the book is that after all of these deaths, there were 10 um, at SAE, the national organization decided that indeed there was no reason to have not just hazing, but to have any kind of pledge program. They decided this was normally uh, fraternities are sort of self-governed. Usually the undergraduates would have to approve this. They decided to take an emergency measure because things had gotten so dangerous and their insurance company was threatening to to revoke its, its policy. They, they decided that they would eliminate any kind of pledge program. In other words, you would you would pick a young man to join, and he would become a member almost immediately. The idea being that there wouldn't be this six-week or two-month period where they were sort of provisional members, where they were most likely to be abused. And what's really interesting is, you know, a lot of people in the fraternity said, you know, this is not going to work. There was a lot of there was a lot of ba a backlash against it, but it held up. SAE had to shut down multiple chapters. I think what I looked at was more than 30. I think it might be more than 40 now because many would not comply. But it did have a big effect um, in the years after I looked. Um, you know, they used to have something like 13 insurance claims a year. It went down to two um, until, unfortunately, recently, um, in, a, in a case that hasn't really been sorted out yet, there hadn't been any, any deaths since, like, 2014. So... Um, I mean, it's not perfect. Uh, 
people at, who instituted the policy were the first to say that hazing didn't disappear, but it became much more difficult. And so I think it's 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 clearly not necessary. Um, sort of people who are fraternity historians talk about how at the very beginning, um, there were, there, most of the fraternity started without any kind of pledge program. It was probably usually it's four to six or ten men got together and formed this group, and they didn't put themselves through any kind of gauntlet. You know, um, even without um, the issues that these fraternities have and deaths, uh, why do universities promote them then on their website? Like, what's in it for the university to say something good about fraternities? Well, fraternities, um, they're very popular. Um, it helps recruit students who want to have a, a healthy party scene. Um, a lot of the, the public universities, which have these huge fraternities, uh, huge fraternity populations like uh, Ohio State or Indiana University, they they recruit students all over the country. So this is a, this is a marketing tool. The other reason is that members of fraternities tend to be among the biggest donors to colleges. So um, I looked at Indiana University. I think they made up something like uh, maybe 20 percent of of their al alumni, but 60 percent of all donations. And if you walked around that campus, pretty much every major building was named after a member of a fraternity. And you know the big the, the companies that uh, you know were big sponsors of the football team had connections to the fraternity. So these are these are organizations that are whose members are really sort of foundational to the school. So it is extremely hard to uh, to stand up to them. And in, the, in the book, I looked at examples where college presidents really had trouble. Um, probably the most dramatic example was from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, where I looked at a chapter of, of SAE where one during, during one recruiting period, there had been three young men who had been hospitalized for, um, for uh, alcohol, underage recruits, basically. And the dean's office had become extremely concerned and had launched an investigation, um, and they launched it after having some pretty compelling evidence. They had uh, the police showing up to this party after the initiation, and they had a dash cam video of all these of drunk underage students, including one who was so drunk that he tried to get into the police cruiser thinking it was a taxi. And so, you know, there was the uh, closed-door hearing, which I, I actually got to see the transcript and kind of reconstruct it. Um, where, you know, the, the students weren't allowed a lawyer, but they had an advisor who was a, a very powerful state senator who, was in, who, was a who had been a member of the fraternity. And, you know, to make a, a very long story short, um, they were, in fact, shut down and, and, and kicked off the campus, and the national organization supported that. But the local alumni, um, who had lots of connections in the state capitol in Raleigh, pushed really hard to get new trustees on the board. And the trustees who were members of SAE, and one of them told me that the only reason that he joined the board was to get the fraternity back on campus, and that they, that he actually told the president of the university that either SAE comes back or essentially it's your job. You know, do it 
you can do it the easy way or the hard way. And then the uh, president confirmed this conversation with me. And after a lot of back and forth, the president left his job, NSE came back. So these, these are powerful organizations, and there can be consequences for um, administrators who stand up to them. Okay, John. Um, you know, we've talked about your usual, you know, your run-of-the-mill fraternity. What about Skull and Bones? I mean, I know the listeners want to know about Skull and Bones. Well, the um, these are the, the secret societies at, at, at Yale, which were basically offshoots of fraternities. Um, they they kind of became separate um, organizations at at Yale, and you know these. They also have, um, you know, they also, you know, are very helpful to people's careers. And um, one of the, well, what there is some difference though. The the secret societies at Yale are now largely co-ed, which is a little bit different. And I don't think there have been the same same kinds of same kinds of deaths. I should say I didn't, you know, I didn't really research this. There, there are actually a couple of really good books about secret societies. I'll probably tell you more, but I know a little bit about them. And they they were kind of born of the same impulses of um, of fraternities. I mean, one one big difference is that the the, the senior societies and the, the final clubs, for instance, at, at at Harvard, they don't start from the moment you step on campus. So. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the issues with uh, fraternities is that they recruit, you know, freshmen or even high school students who often, you know, their judgment isn't so great. And so some of the most dangerous time for a student is the first few weeks that they come onto campus. And this is when they might, you know, be recruited and be subject to it. Um, I think, you know, a lot of schools have talked about um, deferring this recruitment till later when you have a broader circle of friends who would basically tell you, you don't need this, you don't you don't need to compromise your dignity to join. So, you know, I mean, in short, these secret societies, I'm sure, have, have their issues, but they're not nearly as widespread, or they're not in every school. But, you know, they're under, at, at Harvard, for instance, the, the final clubs are under assault right now. There's a, an effort by the school to force the final clubs and the fraternities and sororities to be um, co-ed because of concern that... Um, start out with concern about sexual assault, but also just sort of cultural issues of privilege and drinking and um, inclusiveness. And so if they're phasing in a policy that if you join one of those organizations that you won't be able to be captain of a sports team or be nominated for a Rose and Marshall scholarship. So they are trying to essentially change those organizations, and um, they're now facing a huge pushback, including litigation. So that also shows how powerful they are. It's uh, it's not easy for the schools to, to take any kind of step. Yeah, but, uh, okay, John, we're being so polite about this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've got several presidents who are members of Skull and Bones. Now, when you say that uh, it, this is not decided whenever a person you know, shows up at campus, okay, you know, I'm the freshman, I'm signing up for U of A, you know, University of Arizona. I, I understand this. You know, I, I get this. You know, I've got to choose, you know, from 
this organization or this organization, but Skull and Bones has got such a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, conspiratorial history. You know, it, that takes some doing to even get the notice of Skull and Bones. You know, you know. Let's not be so polite about it. I mean, this is a this is an organization who is choosing world leaders, and and the the things that we hear that you have got to do to be a member of Skull and Bones, you know, such as you know masturbating in a coffin or telling your deepest darkest secrets, and this is why world events are happening in certain ways because of this organization. You know, how do you answer to that? I mean, I, there are people who feel that these kinds of organizations are not productive and kind of, you know, that uh, they shut out a lot of people. I, you know, again, I... You could make the argument that, and I thought about this a lot when I went to visit attorneys around the country, is that one of the things that 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 national fraternities do is they offer a route into this kind of exclusive organization from all kinds of colleges all over the country. So you can join the Sigma Alpha Epsilon at, um, well, actually you can't now, I think it I think the Yale chapter has disaffiliated, but uh, there is a the Harvard chapter. But you can also join at, um, you know, colleges all over the country at a, a public university and small liberal arts colleges. So you will have access to that network. So I guess in some ways that that offers some of the same appeal of networking and access to power that someone at a, a secret society might, um, you know, might have as well. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that those issues are somewhat different. And again, I, 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 I've read, I've read about them, and um, I attended Yale, so I'm familiar with them. But I, it's not really, it wasn't really the focus of my book. Sure. Oh, well, how does somebody get the notice of Skull and Bones? Let, let's say you know I'm a, I'm a freshman, and I want to join you know Lambda Lambda Lambda, mm -hmm. you know, and you should get a chuckle out of that, but. You know, how do I get the notice of Skull and Bones? You know, what makes me different from any other pledge? Well, again, with I think they're 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 chosen at the end of your college career, so it's often I am sure that there's some legacy aspect and high society aspect, but also there are people are recruited who are say editor of the paper or captain of teams or leaders in other ways. So, I mean, I think then there's also social cachet. But again, since it's secret, I I, I couldn't be sure myself. So. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I hear you. You know, there, there are people who feel that that's not something that, uh, you know, that's you're trying to draw a, a diverse group of people from all over the country from different backgrounds and why should you divide them when they get to campus and that's one of the concerns that people have about single sex organizations and and also if you're talking about fraternities again fraternities because of their history are already divided by race they're they're african american fraternities and they're latino fraternities mm -hmm. women's fraternities or sororities so 
again, they're at a time when people are, are, are looking to universities to try to promote diversity and interaction of people from different backgrounds, that there's a real question whether these organizations are working across purposes. And that, that yeah. would be true of, uh, you know, well, that would be true of the secret societies as well. You know, and it's not much different outside of the, the collegiate experience, you know, because, you know, Masons, you know, speaking as a Mason, we have two different organizations. We have the Masons, then we have the Prince Hall, you know, Masons. Hmm. So it, it's, it's not much different outside of the collegiate experience. But a lot of, I mean, a lot of schools try to, particularly among uh, first-year students, to make sure people are rooming with a, you know, people from all over the country and from different international students and domestic students. And part of the part of the education is outside of class, is learning from your your classmates. And in fact, one of the reasons that the Supreme Court um, has upheld affirmative action, for instance, is not not only that it benefits students who receive it, but also that um, it benefits everyone there because you're going to be living in a diverse world and have to deal with lots of different kinds of people, and so the university should be somehow reflective of the broader society. So there is definitely a question when you have these kind of elite groups, whether it's helping with this mission or, or hurting. Now, what the fraternities will say is that um, they're they are trying to be more diverse, and I have seen chapters that 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 are, but that that's a they they do have a long way to go. So now, with with all of your research and the timing that you put into it, uh, what do you think should happen with fraternities? Do we need to keep them going, or should they be taken out, gotten rid of? Well, you know, I'm often asked that question. I don't I don't advocate for a ban. Um, in part because um, it's it's not really workable. You know, I think at, at, at a university, at a public university, for instance, as a government organization, it, the First Amendment protects freedom of association. So, you know, they are going to, you can recognize them or not, but you can't forbid a student from joining. I mean, I think that's fairly clear. Even in private universities like Harvard, which are trying to take steps there, being sued on a variety of grounds. There have been a few, a, a small handful of, of mostly small liberal arts colleges that have banned fraternities like Williams and Amherst. Um, and they, Williams, for instance, did it in the 60s when they were fairly weak and created an entire new residential college system to kind of give students an alternative. And I think Williams would say that it worked quite well. Um, but I just think it's not something first of all, legally that's easy to do, and also because of the power of fraternities and the popularity of fraternities. It's something that people want. They house a quarter of a million students, so the biggest landlord for students after the universities themselves. It would be extremely difficult. So, you know, what I talk about in the book is, is ways to reform fraternities. And, you know, the first would be to, to take any step that you can to cut back on their drinking. So that would be enforcing the drinking laws at fraternity chapters, um, getting fraternities to ban hard liquor, and as some fraternities have actually done, to ban alcohol in chapter houses. I write in the book about uh, Phi Delta Theta, which is one of the largest fraternities, which was struggling with a, a number of 
deaths in the 90s up to 2000, and Phi Delta Theta instituted a policy of, of dry chapter houses. And since then, um, actually until last year, unfortunately, um, they hadn't had a single death, but more important, you know, even even more significantly, their their claims went down something like 90%. So they were generally safer. Now that's not to say that every one who belongs to Phi Delta Theta, um, you know, adheres to these policies. That's often a reason you hear, well, you know, you you can't you can't eliminate it, so we can't do anything. I look at this as a as a public health issue. So you know, uh, the United States decided that smoking was a a terrible thing, and there would be uh, all kinds of efforts, making it more expensive, public service announcements, better information. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a huge reduction in smoking, same with drunk driving. So this, that that has to be kind of a university-wide um, crackdown on, on drinking at fraternities. Now, thank you for, for talking about um, about your book and about the fraternities. A book, again, it's called True Gentleman. And it's um, by John Heckinger. And um, you have a website as well or something so people can get to it? I do. It's uh, johnheckinger.com, J-O-H-N-H-E-C-H-I-N-G-E-R.com. And uh, I have information about uh, uh, articles and the book and and, uh, fraternities in general. So um, there are ways to contact me through the the website as well. And... uh, Al and Kevin, I really appreciate your your having me on for your uh, for your show. Well, thank, thank you, thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.